the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Plan Your Estate Radio with your host, San Jose Estate Planning Attorney Bob Bergman. Bob's been practicing law for over 30 years and is certified by the State Bar of California as a legal specialist in estate planning trust and probate law. Bob is here to help you set your house in order with valuable insights you can use today to prepare a better tomorrow for your loved ones. And now your host for Plan Your Estate Radio, Attorney Bob Bergman. Good afternoon, Bay Area, and I want to do a special shout-out to my African-American brothers and sisters. Uh, Happy Juneteenth. I know this is um, a a very important celebration day, and uh, many states actually have it as a a state holiday. And uh, there is a move now to have it be a federal holiday, um, which uh, I would support. I think that that's... uh, that's a fine idea. It's, it is really what uh, some call the second Independence Day. Um, it basically memorializes a, a day in our past when uh, finally news of the Emancipation Proclamation issued by President Lincoln uh, made it to the farthest reaches of Texas and uh, people found out once and for certain that uh, the slaves had been freed uh, by the proclamation and that uh, and now it was the law of the land. And we've come a long way since that time. We have a long way to go. But I think one of the positive steps that we could make as a country is to start celebrating Juneteenth as a federal holiday so that people can be reacquainted with the reason behind the holiday and and we can start healing as a nation. I'm all for that. Um, I had a um, wonderful conversation earlier this week with um, a man who is now a new friend of mine. We had a very candid conversation about uh, our backgrounds and um, race relations and things like that. And it, uh, I learned a lot. I think he learned a lot as well. And I'm hopeful that uh, it will be the beginning of growth for both of us. I'm making myself available uh, to answer questions on the air today. Should you wish to call in with your questions, or if you'd prefer, you can email the questions in to me. Uh, You could email to radio at lawbob.com if you would like to uh, send a question in for me to answer on the air. Uh, or you can actually call me uh, today at 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. And uh, we can then talk about um, anything you'd like to talk about on the air. <clears throat> I, I am going to continue on, um, you know, waiting to see if anyone calls in. I'm going to continue on in the usual practice that I have on this show which is to cover questions and comments from around the state of California. 
and I've picked out a number of them today. I hope some of them will be uh, useful information for you out there. Uh, we'll also let you know, just um, in case you were wondering, my physical office is open again. I've been open a couple of weeks now. <clears throat> I've had a number of people come to my office for consultations and, uh, and similar. Um, I had uh, consultations today uh, in my office, and it feels good to have people coming back into my office again. It keeps me better focused, and it makes me feel like um, there is uh, life returning to the Valley and uh, to the Bay Area. I will also share that this past weekend, I went with my wife and my children down to the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk, which is open. Uh, the rides are not open, although that may change soon. But many of the food establishments are open. The mini golf is open inside. But maybe most importantly, the beach is available. You can go out and sit on the beach or lay on the beach. You can go wade into the water, uh, go with your boogie board or whatever. Uh, I had one daughter that spent uh, all the time there swimming around in the water and collecting seashells. And I went down wading with her. And then my wife and my other daughter sat on towels and kind of soaked up the sun and talked about the meaning of life. It, uh, it was a good feeling being out there in the uh, salt air and the fresh air. It was about 72 degrees. I would recommend if you want to go down to Santa Cruz this weekend, go down early. Get on the road by 9 or 9.30, get yourself down there, uh, walk around on the beach, enjoy it. And then you can spend a few hours there and come back and you'll avoid running into the thousands of people who will likely be heading down there um, in the afternoon. And that way you can avoid the, the rush. It took about, I think, about 35 minutes from my home in South San Jose down to the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk, which was uh, not too bad. So that's what I'd suggest this weekend. Many of the malls have reopened, um, so you can go in and actually shop inside. Uh, many of the businesses in the malls, at least the one I saw, it looks like some of the businesses are gone permanently. Uh, maybe not able to withstand being shut down as long as they have been. But as we go forward um, as a community, as the Bay Area, let us be careful with one another. Let us um, continue practicing uh, and respectfully practicing social distancing and wearing masks in those contexts where it's appropriate to do so. Please also, though, do not attack or condemn or harass people who choose not to wear a mask in certain situations. Um, there is science both ways. Uh, there's politics both ways. I would just hope that people would kind of set that aside and focus on just being kind to one another and helping each other out in this time. If you have a local business that was shut down and you can patronize them, then consider patronizing them to help them stay open, help them regain their feet. Shop locally whenever possible. I, I think that's a good thing right there. Um, I, my family's gone into the Barnes & Noble store to do some shopping. It was wonderful being able to go into the store, physically pick up books, and walk over and check out and walk out with a book in hand instead of waiting for it to come in the mail from Amazon or someplace else. That was a wonderful feeling. 
Um, we spent far too much on books, but at least it's books that my kids are going to read, and I'm all about having my children read. In fact, the, the, I think the best advice I could give to anyone raising children is see if you can get them to read and read a lot because you can learn a lot when reading. You learn about, about life, learn about other peoples, learn about other parts of the world, and I know that has been um, valuable to me in my life, and I would pass that on to you, especially those of you who have younger children. So I'm going to deal with one of these questions and comments from around the state of California here. Um, this person out of San Diego said a few years ago, uh, his cousin made a trust that gave him a gift of half a million dollars. Recently, the cousin asked a lawyer to prepare a new trust and lowered the gift to $100,000, but the cousin died before signing the new trust, so the new trust was never validly executed. Question, do I have a claim for the full half million under the old trust? Must a new trust be signed in order to be valid? Well, the answers to those two questions are yes and yes. If there was a trust that gave you a half a million dollars and it was not revoked and it was not updated with a new trust, it's still the valid trust and and you'd be entitled to the half million dollars and yes a trust has to be signed as a general rule in order to be valid unless you have what's called a constructive trust which is one that is established through the court where there is some reason to believe that someone intended property to be held in trust or passed on in trust to somebody um, but in a case like this i think it's pretty clear that the half million dollar gift still stands so, as we come up on the first break of the show today, I want to let you know you can call me at 800-516-1220 if you'd like to ask me a question on the air or talk about something. You can also email me at radio at lawbob.com with your questions. And when we come back after the break, I'll continue with more questions and comments. This is Attorney Bob Bergman. Talk with you then. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio. Once again, your host, estate planning trust and probate law specialist, Attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back, everyone. Uh, this is Bob Bergman, host of Plan Your Estate Radio, and I'm going to continue on with more questions and comments from around this great state of California. This is an interesting one. It's not so much an estate planning question, but um, I thought it was just kind of fun. We'll throw this in here. Um, can I keep the dog that my daughter thinks is hers? She didn't buy it. She never took care of it or provided for it. All the costs were paid by me. So this person said, I got the dog that my daughter could have while at home. She was thrown out, alcoholic, threatening drugs, restraining order issued. Now she wants to come and get the dog, which has bonded with us for two years. We want to keep the dog. You know what my response would be? The dog is yours. You bought the dog, you paid for it, you took care of it, you, you provided everything for the dog. Dogs are personal property, even though many of us think that dogs are part of the family, just like cats. I happen to have cats, they're part of the family. But at the same time, if you bought the dog, if you paid for everything for the dog, it's your dog. There is no right for the daughter to come and get the dog and especially since it sounds like the daughter would not be a very good match for the dog in the first place. Now, not really an estate planning question, but I thought it was interesting. 
because uh, it points out that um, something like an animal is personal property treated similarly to furniture and clothing and stuff like that. And as such, um, in a case like this, it's pretty much owned by the person that has possession of that dog and has been caring for the dog. Um, so anyway, I just thought I'd throw that in there. A little bit different than the usual thing you hear on my show, but I thought it was uh, somewhat entertaining. <clears throat> okay, now here we have <clears throat> Santa Cruz. Two brothers are on the mobile home title. One dies and leaves a will for his daughter to have his interest. Does she get the deceased brother's interest? Well, it, you'd think it would be an easy answer, but actually you need more information than this. You need to know when it says the two brothers are on the mobile home title, the question becomes, how are they actually on the title? If we say the brothers are, are John and Jimmy, John and Jimmy Smith, <clears throat> does it say John Smith and Jimmy Smith um, and nothing else? If that's the case, they have what's called a tenancy in common, and each one of them can uh, leave their share of the mobile home to anyone they wish. And if, and if one of them, if Jimmy makes a will saying, I leave it to my daughter, uh, Janie, then when Jimmy dies, his half of the property, his half of the mobile home goes to his daughter, Janie, through the will. But if it was John and Jimmy um, as joint tenants, that would mean if Jimmy dies, his share goes to his brother, John, it doesn't go to his daughter, Janie. And that's because a joint tenancy acts to transfer ownership of the interest of the joint tenant that died to the surviving joint tenant or joint tenants, if there's more than one. That happens by operation of law and a will being made by the person that died is not going to change or affect the joint tenancy because the joint tenancy says surviving joint tenant owns the property. You can't make a will that says your share goes in another direction. If the person wanted that to happen, they would have to do what's called severing the joint tenancy, which means transferring their, in this case, half interest to directly to Jimmy would have to transfer it from himself to himself so that there's no longer a joint tenancy with his brother. And now they each own half of the property individually in their own name with no survivorship right in the other one. That's what a joint tenancy does. It's a joint tenancy with right of survivorship, which means the surviving joint tenant or joint tenants now owns the property. If you sever the joint tenancy by transferring the ownership interest out of the joint tenancy so that your interest, in this case Jimmy's interest, is now owned by Jimmy directly as a half interest, then we have what's called a tenancy in common, and each one of them can transfer their interest any way they wish, without the permission of the other one. <clears throat> okay, now here is, yeah, here is actually a question about whether or not a trustee um, has acted properly as a trustee. Out of Southern California, this person says, I just learned that prior to death, my grandfather's trustee of his trust, my uncle, had his four children on a business health plan for a real estate holding company 
owned by my grandfather's trust. The children are all adults. None of them worked for the real estate firm in any capacity. This cost the trust about $75,000 over five years. The trust doesn't say that my uncle had the power to do this as trustee. Um, the the uncle was my uncle was the CEO of the holding company, separate and apart from his position as a trustee. It turns out my grandfather had put them on the insurance prior to my uncle taking over as the trustee, but when my uncle took over, my grandfather was declared incompetent. So. Two questions. Um, was my grandfather breaking the law to have the children on a business health plan while not on staff? Well, don't really know the answer to that. Um, because if it was his company and, uh, and the uh, health plan said it's okay with them, then it was okay with them. The real question is whether or not the uncle taking over his trustee should have continued the practice of the grandfather or whether he should have said this is not really appropriate to have these children on the health plan because they don't work for the company. And um, and it probably was improper and, uh, and the uncle maybe needs to be called to task for that because it sounds like it actually cost the grandfather's trust tens of thousands of dollars to do this and may not have been appropriate in the first place. So I'm going to try and squeeze in one more before we reach the mid-show break. Uh, this one's kind of interesting. <laughs> you know, I'm going to reserve judgment on how I feel about this, but this person said, I've been married for four years. My husband's family made it to where he couldn't get into the trust set up for him without going through a few safety channels. Uh, his brother, the lawyer, etc. And now certain parts of the trust are starting to come in, and my husband has me on the trust and now has access to the money. I want to divorce him. What am I entitled to? Well, my first inclination would be to say it's not your money. It's not your inheritance. I don't know why you think you're entitled to anything. Having access to the money doesn't mean that you have access to the money if the trust was set up for your husband. If your husband now owns this trust and put you on as a co-owner with him and then uh, which I think would have been foolish, but let's assume he did that and then you divorce him, you might be entitled to half of what's in that trust. But uh, I will say if the trust was set up properly, then you probably aren't entitled to anything. At least if I had set up the trust, the uh, the spouse of the beneficiary would not be entitled to anything, would not have any claim of any kind on that property. So we're coming up on the mid-show break. If you'd like to call in, it's 800-516-1220. Or you can email me at radio at lawbob.com. We'll be coming back after the break and after a few commercials. So we'll talk with you then. This is attorney Bob Bergman, host of Plan Your State Radio. Talk with you after the break. This is Plan Your Estate Radio with San Jose estate planning attorney Bob Bergman on AM 1220 KDOW. Hi, welcome back. Well, um, I'm going to continue on with more questions and comments from around the state of California. 
Uh, hopefully you will pick up something here that is uh, valuable for you and uh, maybe you can even use it later on. That would be really, really nice if that was the case. All right, now here, oh, this is a, this is a tough one here. Um, person says, my wife has been an addict for over 10 years and I want to get conservatorship over her so we can get her into recovery. When told she cannot return home until she agrees to get help, she chose to live on the street and we're worried about her health and well-being. We believe that the addiction she has is controlling her behavior and she's not making rational decisions, putting herself at risk. First of all, I want to say um, kudos to this, um, this person, this uh, spouse, for wanting to help his or her wife uh, by getting them into recovery. Uh, yes, you can file for conservatorship for your spouse uh, who is addicted and is living on the street. Um, problems are going to be, first of all, finding the person if they're living on the street and they don't have a fixed address or a fixed abode. But yes, it can be done. <clears throat> In a case like this, if someone is an addict and it's determined that they are really not able to care for themselves properly, then uh, a court could appoint the the spouse to be the conservator. But that's a rough situation all the way around. I know a lot of people would, would choose instead uh, to divorce a person in that situation. Uh, if they cannot help them at all, they might say, well, I need to move on and take care of myself in my life. I'm not advocating for one approach or the other. I'm just stating the fact that, uh, that people can go different directions um, when faced with a circumstance like a spouse that has an addiction problem and has chosen to to live on the street instead of deal with the addiction and try to get better, uh, try to go through recovery. <clears throat> now here's someone that um, indicates um, this actually is, uh, yeah, actually here uh, in Santa Clara County. It's a question that was asked earlier today. Person said, I have a trust for myself. Most of my assets are already in the trust. I understand that changes in the SECURE Act, SECURE Act, which I've talked about earlier this year, require, require non-spouse IRAs and retirement plan beneficiaries to drain inherited accounts within 10 years after my death. It could actually even be as quickly as five years, but 10 years appears to be about what will happen with most situations. I'm assuming this also includes my Roth IRA. Yes, it does. What are the pros and cons of adding my retirement accounts to the trust? What other options do I have? What professionals should I seek? Well, first of all, you would not want to add your retirement plans to your trust at any time because if you did that, if you transferred the ownership of those accounts to your trust, that would trigger a 100% distribution of the retirement plan in the year that you made that transfer. This is because retirement plans are individually owned retirement accounts and they cannot be owned by, by um, while you're alive. It can only be owned by you if you transfer ownership in any way. You have distributed that uh, asset out of the retirement plan and it's not a retirement plan anymore. 
It's a different thing when you pass away and it passes on to a spouse or children or other heirs, or when it passes on to a special type of trust that you created ahead of time to become the beneficiary of a retirement plan. Uh, in that case, you can actually have a trust that's a beneficiary, not the owner, but the beneficiary of the retirement plan. Um, and that trust in turn can have beneficiaries that it distributes money out to. Uh, typically, that would be um, someone's children or grandchildren. But in a case like this, the the options are to designate um, that, that there's really no way out of the the new secure rules uh, unless a retirement plan was going to a disabled child, for example. Uh, that's an exception to the rule, the 10-year the rule, we're calling it now, or the 5 rule, which can also apply. But um, I would say, uh, really, the only other options besides naming somebody directly to receive that retirement plan is to create a trust called the Retirement Plan Trust that becomes the beneficiary of that retirement plan. That can provide some asset protection. It can make sure that monies don't go directly to a beneficiary who may not be equipped to handle the inheritance, either because of incapacity or financial instability or being in a bad marriage or relationship or or being addicted or something along those lines. In cases like that, you might very well want to have somebody else in charge of those monies and make sure that someone else is in charge of distributing those monies uh, if and when the ultimate beneficiary needs them. But there's not really much else you can do uh, with the changes in the SECURE Act. Um, it took away a lot of planning we could do for retirement plans, and it's primarily because the government has decided they want the money out of those plans as quickly as possible after you die if you haven't taken it out while you're alive. But that's uh, one of the problems with retirement plans in general is the government created the conditions for having them in the first place and the government can change the rules like they did with the SECURE Act. And uh, what may have been a great idea or a great investment when you were younger may turn out to be a very poor investment and not the best way to own things when you're older because Congress can change the rules on us and, and they do that. Uh, Congress changes the rules fairly regularly. Sometimes they benefit us. It seems like more frequently they cause uh, cost more money for taxpayers. Uh, you have to spend more, you have to pay more, and everything else. Now, here's someone who uh, has moved to California but has property in Texas, and I'm assuming they mean real estate, you know, actual land or houses or things in Texas. Um, they want to know, can you set up a trust in California with property located in Texas? I said it's hard for the person to move to Texas and set up a trust there. The answer is absolutely you can. A trust set up in California can own real estate anywhere in the United States. In fact, I have many clients that do own properties in other states either investment or rental properties, or maybe a property that was inherited from a parent or another family member, 
And yes, you can have a California trust that owns property in Texas or Nevada or Maine or New York or Florida or anywhere else in the country. Um, in fact, doing that is likely to then have that property completely avoid whatever probate process exists in the state where the property is located. Not such a big deal in some states where the probate process is pretty simple and straightforward. It's a really big deal in a state like California where the probate process is very uh, long, drawn out, expensive, and complicated and, uh, and creates problems for families that could be completely avoided by using a living trust-based estate plan instead of a will-based estate plan or no estate plan at all, which is really the worst of all possible worlds, no estate plan at all. Okay, here's uh, one out of Southern California, uh, out of San Diego. And the question is this. Uh, my spouse has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Do we need a permanent power of attorney for future decisions? Does it need to be notarized? Well, I've got some uh, answers to the questions. Yes, a power of attorney typically needs to be notarized. It can be set up to be permanent, meaning that what we call a durable power of attorney, meaning that it continues in full force and effect uh, even if someone becomes incapacitated. But if someone is already incapacitated with Alzheimer's, it's too late to set up a power of attorney. That person likely no longer has the legal capacity to sign a power of attorney and give authority to someone else to act for them financially. In a case like this, if you want to be able to handle property that you own jointly with your spouse who has Alzheimer's, such as a house that you need to sell or refinance or whatever it is, you're probably looking at a conservatorship having to be filed to get the authority to not only handle the spouse's interest in property, but also make medical and healthcare decisions for the spouse if that becomes necessary. That's just a fact. Um, I plan on having someone coming in maybe in the next month or so to talk about conservatorship here in Santa Clara County, which will generally apply throughout the Bay Area. But, uh, but I just want to let you know, conservatorship is probably in this person's future. Okay, we're coming up on the end of the third segment today. If you'd like to call in, the number is 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. Or you can email me at radio at lawbob.com if you have your questions. When we come back after the break, I'll go into the final segment of the show today. Talk with you then. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio with attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back. Well, uh, over the break, uh, I have a call that came in. Linda from Fremont. Linda, are you there? Yes, I am. Okay. Uh, you ever been on the radio before? No, I haven't. Okay. Well, that that's okay. I've been on for quite some time now, and I'll help you through this. So um, what question do you have for me? Okay. If you have an insurance policy you took out a while ago... And it wasn't a MECA, a modified endowment policy. Mm-hmm. And then you changed to upgrade to get more coverage. You changed that policy into a new company. Does the new company um, change it to a MECA? Does it become a MECA then? 
Well, that it's a great question. I'm not an insurance agent. <laughs> um, I was in the past. Um, I, I think that as long as you go into a new policy and and you have not mecked the policy with the new policy, in other words, you keep within the guidelines, um, keeping it from becoming a modified endowment contract, uh, I don't think there would be an issue. Um, it's really not so much an estate planning question. Um, I, do you have access to the insurance person that you purchased the original policy from? Oh, not from the original policy, no. Okay. So it sounds like your original policy, you, you overpaid into it? To, no, I paid it according, to, I paid according to the, the original policy. I paid according to like a plan, but then I, I found out I could change it in and get a higher um, policy that paid more with, this, with the money I changed from the old policy. Okay. Well, I think there it, it, it really is more a matter of by doing that new policy, did you over did you essentially overpay into that policy to get that new coverage or did you just get higher coverage with the same amount of dollars if it's the latter you probably did not mech anything um, because they're just giving you more coverage for the same amount of dollars um, no now, i had to add I'm, more money but i got more um i got more coverage too okay well i guess the short answer is uh, whoever got you into that new policy should be able to tell you whether or not the policy is a MEC. Um, it likely is not. Otherwise, that's something that would have had to been disclosed to you up front, and you would have had to agree to understanding that uh, it, may, it made the policy different um, oh, okay. than what it would normally be. So the answer probably is that it's not because that is important information that you would have had to be aware of and agree to. Um, oh, okay. But, I mean, I'd go back to the insurance person if you're concerned about this. I'd go back and just ask them, um, this new policy, is did was this policy mech? Did this mech? Uh, or am I just, are you still paying on it, for example? No, no, no. Because, like I say, I... I could take the money from the old company and put it in a new company, get be- bigger coverage, and with the same amount of money is what I'm saying. But I added money. You added money. So it sounds like it might be a, a fully paid-up policy then, if you're not right. paying any more in there. Um, right. And if, if that's the case, I, if that's the case, it's possible that you did make the policy if it's fully paid up. Um, and you can, like, borrow from it and things like that in the future. Um, but I would go back to the insurance agency that, that helped you get this new policy and confirm with them one way or the other, is this is this policy a mech, yes or no? Probably not. It, it, you, know, you can have a fully paid-up policy that's not mech'd. Um, right. No, I so, understand that, but I, I understand that when you change companies that's my main concern when i changed companies and and then added more money well again i think each insurance policy stands on its own merit and each insurance policy will have guidelines that indicate when monies that go in cause the policy to be a modified endowment contract or met oh okay um so just changing companies is not going to trigger that 
It's what are the terms and conditions of the policy you're going into. That's going to determine whether or not you uh, have mecked the policy or not. And chances are you haven't, or that's something that would have been disclosed and discussed with you because it does it does affect things. Um, it does affect, uh, I mean, if you take, as I recall vaguely, it's been years since I sold insurance, but my vague recollection is that if you have a MECT policy and you, quote, borrow money out, it's actually treated as as a withdrawal that, that could be um, partially taxed and partially untaxed rather than a policy loan. Oh, no, I realize, um, yeah, if you take money out, yeah. Yeah. And if okay. you mech the contract, it, it's treated more like, more conceptually like an annuity. And if you take money out of an annuity, then you may be taking out principal and then some accumulated interest, and you may actually pay tax. Whereas with a policy where you just bar, make a policy loan, you you don't pay any tax on that of any kind because it's just a loan, and okay. uh, and the loan goes away later on when right. when you pass away the loan gets repaid from the proceeds of the policy and there's no taxable oh, okay, event there okay thank okay you. Mm-hmm. all right well thank you very much linda for calling in always a pleasure to talk to someone that listens to the show we're coming up in the end of the show today i think we have maybe about uh 45 seconds or so can i, I want to let you know you can always then? oh we about 45 seconds i'm wrapping it up it's got to be real quick if you add uh, your, if I add my daughter to my trust, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, to my trust and do a bank account, does that mean she's joint owner? Okay, simple question, very complicated answer because I don't have enough information. Oh, okay. But if you want, if you want to shoot me an email at uh, radio at lawbob, I'll be happy to answer that for you. Give you a call Ra- back. Radio at what? Okay, radio at lawbob dot com. L a w b o b dot com. Okay, uh, I okay, think that's you. it. Goodbye, everyone. Uh, Vince, are we Thank about you. there? Thank you. Okay, got about 20 seconds left. Just a, um, just a short answer for Linda there. Um, if you add a child to an account, it uh, depends on how you add them. Do they have signing authority under a power of attorney, or have you added them as a co-owner? Very different results there. So, until next week, this is Attorney Bob Bergman. We'll talk to you again next Friday. Plan Your State Radio. You have a great weekend. Yeah.